0: Good evening, everyone. I'm saying good evening because it's almost 10 o'clock. I think this is the latest that I've ever recorded a podcast. But, you know, it's a Friday night and I'm just not sleepy. So I decided to get a podcast out. I needed to get one out earlier this week. And, you know, it's like this thing where you don't think that you're super busy. But I had a lot going on and I was super busy I know one time, instead of of recording a podcast, I was mowing the lawn because it was supposed to rain for the next five days, and, well, we still haven't seen a drop, but at least it was cooler tonight. It was a nice evening, but I'm Greg Steele. I'm the host of the 5 and 40 podcast. This is a podcast where we try to talk about five topics in 40 minutes and uh, try to get you in, try to get you out, try to talk about some things that are interesting, had some really good feedback about my return episode, had some people that really were kind of letting me know they were listening and it's sort of the reason I'm doing it and I really appreciate everybody for that. I do have to make a quick disclaimer which is basically like anything I say in the podcast any opinions are mine uh, and not of anyone else's of any entity of any employer of anybody else and once we get the legal junk out of the way we can start talking about our first topic and so the first topic I wanted to talk about today was uh, Medicare for all or basically healthcare for all. And so I had a conversation with a good friend of mine. Uh, So you've listened to the podcast, you've kind of heard that I still have four really good high school friends that I really keep in touch with and still hang out with. And I know that's pretty unusual. And, you know, one of the things that I think back that we never ever really talked about was politics, but sort of like, things these days are to the point where politics are just in everything and it's and it's just it's just more now than it was and everyone is expressing more opinions than they used to and it's pretty strange just because of the fact that I realize that you know a couple of these friends kind of really are on the other side of the aisle for me you know I'm fairly conservative raised republican kind of have those some of those beliefs but a couple of the guys in the group are really kind of on the left side of things and honestly, you know, it's just not something we ever really talked about. And it it wasn't like, you know, they say don't ever talk about religion or politics. And these are some of my best friends. There's no conversations that we couldn't have. It was just because it just didn't impact our lives, I guess. And now it just seems we're in a place where just everyone feels like it's impacting us so much. that, that And there's there's so much at stake and everything's important. And so... It's just kind of like, honestly, I've been hanging out with these guys now almost my entire life, and it's like I'm learning things about them. Now, the interesting thing is there's me, there's Rodney, and there's three Joshes, and so it's always confusing, and not to us, of course, but you know, two of the Joshes are actually kind of, you know, really on the left side of things. Um, Now, one of the Joshes has always been on the left side of things, but not really said much about it and being pretty vocal these days. And then one of the Joshes has really always been on the right side his whole entire life, but kind of with everything that's gone on, you know, he's sort of leaning a little bit more left. And so he's sort of changed some of his opinions. And so I guess it's one of those things where we've never talked about it and it's not in a topic we ever avoided. But just kind of right now, it's sort of the the thing I guess everyone's talking about. And so uh, my friend Josh West, he lives up in Maryland. He's really one of my best friends, although unfortunately, you know, he and I haven't kept in contact like I'd really like over the last however many years here. I mean, we. but the funny thing is, is that we're such good friends that we cannot talk for a pretty long period of time and we talk and it's sort of like, eh, we never... You know, it's like we just pick up the conversation. And we both understand that we're both busy and we have lives and we're married and we have things going on. And so, you know, it's a really nice friendship. I wish I talked to him more. I wish I saw him more. I haven't seen him in a long time. But uh, just really one of my best friends. Just really a great guy. uh, Someone that I really appreciate in my life. And so he and I had a talk. And so the thing is, is that there's so much going on that you know, it's like, if you're really on, like, let's say you're a conservative, or let's say that you're really a liberal. You know, the thing is, is there's all this stuff on Facebook, and there's all this stuff in the media, and there's all this stuff everywhere. Now, I think the biggest problem is, is the majority of us aren't talking about it like regular citizens. It's sort of like we've been taught we can talk about it. And I think if reg- more regular citizens did talk about it, and we spent less time listening to the media and other entities, we'd probably be better off. But I think the thing is, is that there's very few people in my life who could come up to me and start talking to me about things that are opposite of what my lifelong beliefs are and that, A, I probably would really listen. I wouldn't be mean to anybody, but that could ever actually make me like look inside myself at the things I'm thinking and say, well, I know this is what I believe. I know it's what I've always believed, but is it the right thing? And so Josh West and I had a big, long conversation. I mean, literally like three, three and a half hours the other day and it was really all about politics and I'm not sure he and I have ever had a talk about politics and if we did in the in the past I think we would have had the very same views but like I said he's been sort of questioning some things and been sort of leaning the other way and so we had what I consider a productive talk and I think the thing is is he and I are such good friends And I know him as a person and I value his opinions to where he could have that conversation with me. And I'd listen and I not only would listen, but I'd be like, well, this is a, he's a good guy, right? He's a good person. I I trust him. I like him. And so if he has these beliefs and especially like if he's been on one side and now he's thinking of the other, he's a person who I would be like, well, I, I better examine that in myself, right? And so one of the things we talked about was Medicare for all and I... So it's interesting because like literally during the conversation he and I had, I came into it just staunchly opposing, like when they say universal care. because I was looking at Kamala Harris and I was looking at the other side and I'm like universal health care and, and the argument always is, you know, we can't pay for it, we can't afford it, these kind of things. And so, you know, in the argument I said that. And he said to me, hey, look, he said, number one, we can't afford it. He said, you know, look at what we spend on defense. He said, we spend like, you know, $4 billion or whatever a year or trillion or whatever we spend. He said, so if we drop that from 4 to $3, we would still be able to defend the country and we easily could pay for health care for all Americans. You know, and the interesting thing is, is that right now I hear a whole bunch of people saying stuff like, yeah, we need health care for all. I don't see a lot of people actually saying anything to me about how we accomplish that because... I mean, I don't think there's anybody who would be like, hey, you know what I'd like? I'd like those people not to have health care. You know, I don't think anybody's saying that. But I think that we want if we want that as a nation, like we have to look at kind of where the money's going and we have to say, "Okay, well, here's a place where we have maybe we're spending too much and maybe we kind of transition that over. And so, you know, he said that to me and I was like, well, you know, that makes good sense. But the really, really, really bad thing that happened in the conversation and the really thing, honestly, because I think in a conversation like that, when you're trying to look at the other side of things or someone's trying to make you look at the other side of things, something's really got to happen to make you say, oh, oh wait a minute, maybe, maybe I should be paying attention. And so the interesting thing was, as we started to talk a little bit about Obamacare and I was saying to him, hey, look, you know, Obamacare was supposed to help like 40 million uninsured Americans. Now, at that time, maybe 320 million in the country. And we overhauled the entire healthcare system. And we put this mandate into place. And we changed how insurance is. And we raised prices for everyone. And we did all this stuff for 40 million people. And so I was just like, you know, Medicare for all is like this thing where we're talking about 40 million people who don't have some sort of coverage. And he's like, yeah. He said, but Greg, these are people. And unfortunately, you know, I work in the medical profession. And it's almost like there's times when... I don't know. One thing that's really interesting is that I work for a facility that takes care of a lot of indigent people and kind of has the mission of no one gets turned away. If you come to my hospital, it doesn't matter if you can pay or don't pay. You get taken care of. And so... And I've worked for this place for a really long time. And so it's almost like sometimes... I think maybe that I assume the rest of the nation is that way when, you know, in reality, if you think about it, I know there's a lot of people that don't get health care because, you know, in a for-profit system and in a system that wouldn't necessarily care for you outside of your ability to pay, and and that might be a lot of hospitals, And maybe there are a bunch of places where people aren't getting any health care. But the real thing that made me stop and the real thing that made me just put the brakes on was that when we were talking about this subject and I was saying what I was saying and he was saying what he was saying, I remembered back to when Obamacare was going into place. And I said to myself, or well, not just to myself, I said it to other people at the time. I'm like, all right, so we're going to pass this big bill and nobody's read it and no one knows what's in it and overhaul, overhaul the entire health care system and this has to go to the Supreme Court and this has to do all this thing for for this relatively small amount of Americans and I remember saying at the time I'm like you know rather than doing all this probably be a lot cheaper to just go ahead and put all those people on Medicaid and then they all got health care and we don't have to overhaul the system and we don't have to do all of the things that we did and so you know it's a thing where we're having this talk and I'm basically like arguing against healthcare for all but thinking back to this time where if I was basically suggesting that we should have taken those 40 million people and just put them on to medicare or medicaid and that meant at that time i was saying hey we should pay for those people right because if you put them on that system then taxpayers are going to foot that bill but under obamacare same thing happened anyway taxpayers footed the bill either because our insurance rate went up and we still covered those people or we were paying this uh penalty which went into the system or whatever and so it didn't really change anything but it did kind of make me think about, well, here I'm arguing against this thing where in the past I was like, maybe this isn't such a bad thing. And so why did I change in this period of time? And I, and I, it just made me think. And a lot of things in the conversation that he and I had made me think, and it was just um, sort of eye-opening because you get a little bit older and you, you grow up you know, in in certain environments and you learn certain things and you you learn what's right and wrong. And then sometimes you, you know, you have to kind of evaluate these things because you should have, you should look at yourself and look inside and see what it is, why you believe rather than just saying you believe it. Um, Now, I will say that it's not like the conversation that he and I had meant that I changed my entire stances on every single thing. But it did tell me I better look at him and I better evaluate them and I better know that if that's what I believe, then I have really good reasons that I feel like to believe them. Um, but I i mean, the other thing about it is just that it's really nice to have these friends in your life that you trust so much that you actually could have that converse, conversation with because every single other person I would try to have the conversation with who came at me with any other viewpoints that were on the other side of my own, I would either just be nice and nod and ignore them and move on my way and if it kept on and kept on like maybe we'd get in some big argument but this guy and I aren't going to get in some big argument I mean we trust each other and we respect each other and we're friends for life right and uh, that's the interesting thing too is as this thing has gone by and we sort of learned that hey some of these guys that are in this small group that I have are really have opposite opinions of me and and You know, unfortunately, the thing is, is that during a time like this, you have to evaluate that. But at the end of the day, it's just like, no, these are my lifelong friends, right? These are my boys. And I'm going to love them to the grave regardless of what they believe. And we're going to talk about these things. But, you know, it's those people that you can have these conversations with. And it's the reason why I think, like, Facebook is kind of useless. You know, you go on Facebook and you have all your friends on Facebook and you post this thing about your beliefs. And it's not this trusting relationship and it's not these honest conversations and it's not these things where someone else might be willing to listen to something that you had to say or you might be willing to listen to them. Just Facebook post and you scroll past. And especially the really bad stuff is the Facebook posts that say something like, I believe this and anyone who doesn't is bad. And I just don't understand why people post stuff like that because it's like, when you post stuff, you're not posting it to 50 million people. It's not like you're you're putting this thing out there to change somebody's mind or to just be like you're going to have some big impact. I mean, you post stuff and the only people that are going to see it are your friends or the people that you put on there as your friends. And why we would post things that would basically say, I believe this, and if you don't, you're a piece of crap or you're wrong or you're this or you're that. I mean, the only thing it's going to do is inflame those people. And why would we do that? Because I think that... In personal interactions, I believe that we understand that if you inflame other people, then the opportunity to have conversations and to change opinions and to even have a dialogue is gone. I mean, we say things on Facebook. We'd never say face-to-face or things online. We'd never... You wouldn't walk up to a person and want to talk to them, and the very first thing you say is your opinion is wrong. Because if you do that, I mean, the conversation's over, right? Ah, But we'll do that on Facebook. And... That's the thing I think that drives me crazy and social media I think is one of the reasons why this country is so bad because yes, the media is what it is and yes, the politicians are what they are, but people are being so bad to each other and I think social media has got a lot to do with it because I think people will say so much on social media and post things on social media they never would do face-to-face and they primarily wouldn't do it because they wouldn't just walk up to people and tell them they're wrong and that they're terrible people. We wouldn't do that in real life. Another lesser reason is, is because we learned in school that you don't go and tell bigger people than you bad things. I mean, maybe they punch you in the face, right? But you'll put stuff on Facebook, not you, I'm sorry, but people will put stuff up there that would get you punched in real life, or at the minimum would get you like hated or ignored or have groups ostracize you, you know, but unfortunately, that's what social media is. And social media is like basically this disconnect from real social human interaction and we say stuff that we would never say in real life and I mean I wish that we would hold each other accountable I mean the one thing that I'm really not seeing that I really would love to see that I think would make a lot of these things better and make our nation great and what makes our nation great is just if groups of people would just stand up and just say hey you know what that's wrong because I think that the thing is a majority of Americans don't believe in most of the really extreme stuff, right? All we see on TV and on social media and all this stuff is the really extreme left, the really extreme right. And this side's bad and this side's bad. But almost every normal American doesn't believe in that, right? I mean, that's not who we are as a nation. And the the reason why we're such a great nation is because of the fact that we have such interactions with each other. And I just think, unfortunately, we're at this time where kind of it's been put out there that you can't have opposing views and you can't speak. And I think that if the majority of Americans would speak up, that I think a lot of the things that were going on would just go away, right? And I think we've got that power and unfortunately, you know, this podcast isn't going to reach 50 million people either. <laughs> so, you know, it'd be nice if it would, because I really would think that if we could get the majority of Americans to say, hey, you know what, we're really not down with the the really hard edges of either side. We we're the most of us are more moderate and, and we want this and we want these things from this side and these things from this side and and it's like the loudest voices or the squeaky wheels are getting the grease and the loudest voices are the only ones that heard that are heard but unfortunately they don't represent the opinions of most of us out there on either side of the issue i believe and i just i'm sitting here and i'm watching what's happened and there's a lot of fatigue involved in all the things that are happening and 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 my real hope is is that we'll get to this point where a lot of Americans will just have had enough and just be like, call down the loudest voices because unfortunately the loudest voices are generally not the most intelligent ones, uh, in my experience anyway. So obviously topic number one went over. So we're going to have five and 50 this time, I guess. Um, but I do want to say, I appreciate my friend and I appreciate our conversation and I appreciate we could have that conversation and i It made me reflect on myself. And so we need friends like that, right? And I wish we'd all have personal interactions rather than internet interactions. And we'd all treat each other with the respect that we should. And I think a lot of the stuff that's going on would just go away. Uh, Topic number two I wanted to talk about was St. Simon's Island. And so my wife and I recently went on a vacation to St. Simon's Island And with all the COVID stuff. You know, it's been a while since we had any vacations. But it really was nice we'd never been there before now the atlantic coast is kind of different because normally we always go down to the gulf and the gulf is always blue and the sand is nice and whatever and so you know if you go to the atlantic side that the ocean is darker and the sand is dark brown and it's you can't consider it quite as beautiful of a beach but you know we wanted to get out of town this covid thing's been so nuts And we wanted to have a break. And so, you know, if you go to St. Simon's Island, there's a really, really, really nice resort. It's called the King and Prince. And of course, there's a whole bunch of other nice places to stay. But of course, the King and Prince is very, very, very expensive. And, you know, unfortunately, it's like, it's this thing about, there's a lot of things we could do in life, but the question isn't, can you do them? The question is, should you do them? You know, I really think that way generally about anything to do with money. And I want to have nice vacations. And as a matter of fact, it's my opinion that if you're actually going to spend money and you're going to really splurge, it should be on vacations, right? If you're going to work a whole bunch, then you want to go and have a good time every once in a while. And so I'm not saying we go on a vacation and I'm going to be like counting every penny or saying we can't do anything we want to do. But at the same time, it's like if you you know, stay at the most expensive place and maybe you go and you have things you'd like to do and maybe you don't have the money to do them and you don't have quite the freedom that you had if you spend a whole bunch of money just on the place to stay. But, um, so we stayed at a place, it's called the Village Inn and Pub, which is kind of right down in the smack dab in the middle of all the happenings in St. Simon's Island. And I wanted to talk a little bit about this place because it was a really, really, really cool place. It's sort of a really old sort of place and it's not technically a hotel it's sort of like uh has two floors it has a courtyard in the courtyard there's a pretty small swimming pool but it's really nice and I was looking at the reviews online and the majority of the reviews were just like wow what a great place and what a cool place to stay and like literally it's right three blocks from the pier and three blocks from all the good restaurants and anything within walking distance which is really really nice and Um, so I read some other things online. I mean, if anyone complained about it, I had people complaining that, oh, the rooms are too small and there's nowhere to put your bags. Our room was great. I mean, we had a king bed. It was big. There was a closet to put your bags in. It had a luggage rack. It has nice little balconies in most of the rooms. Um, I would recommend if you went to stay there that you would stay in one of the king rooms with a balcony. I think they're probably bigger than the other ones. And I think the ones people were complaining about were maybe the non-balcony rooms. Um, but really great staff really cool place they have this uh this place inside where they have a bar uh, that was brought over from the 1300s in England and it's a place where the locals come into the bar they have a really nice happy hour from 5 to 7 and when you go in there it's like you're from out of town but you it's like you knew everybody right like everyone talks to you it's a great place bartender that they had um Gosh, I'm trying to remember his name. I think it was RB Rb is his name, yeah. I mean, he was fabulous. Like, a really, he's a really good bartender. You know, some people are just good bartenders, like they're good conversationalists or whatever. But a really nice guy, really funny, really fun place to hang out. You can walk to dinner, um, you know. And I was just kind of like, right off, I was like, eh, St. Simon's, I don't know. I mean, I don't like the Atlantic Coast that much and whatever. But I really enjoyed it, and I can really recommend this place to stay. It was really wonderful. It was, it was a good price. It was in a great location. It was very quaint. The rooms were cool. The staff was great. Um, so I really, really would recommend that if you want to go to that region. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about, uh, St. Simons, which was really interesting, is this boat, right? So St. <laughs> Simons is also a really, really, really big pier or you know a place where international uh shipments come in and go out and so one of the things that they get in there are cars they'll get cars from japan and cars from china and cars from all these places and so the cars come into this port and then some of the cars get on rails and some of the cars get in trucks and some of the cars do this but for cars that are going kind of all all the way across the country i guess it's better to put them on boats um And so cars will come in and then they have these other cargo ships and they'll load like 4,000 cars to be sailed somewhere else. And so the interesting thing is that one of these boats a year ago uh, was full of, I think, 4,100 Hyundais or something. And it was sailing out of the harbor and the cargo inside was not stabilized very well And as far as I understand it from the story, it's like they had one incident where the ship was kind of listing and they were able to correct it. And when that happens, you really should stop and really go back to the port and really, like, make sure everything is cool. But I don't know if they were in a hurry or I don't know what happened, but they didn't. So they kept going. Well, then the load really shifted and basically this ship flipped over on its side in the middle of the harbor. And it was pretty shallow there. And so basically a year later today, you can go down to the pier and there's this ship on its side in the middle of the harbor. And I understand it's been there for a year because they've been arguing about who has to pay for it because obviously salvaging this ship is going to cost millions of dollars. And so, you know, they're arguing about who will have to pay for it. But at the moment, it's still sitting there. And when we went, there were some cranes out there and those kind of things. And we were talking to people about it and reading some stuff about it. And like basically like what they're going to do is they're going to bring this big ship in that looks like a catamaran. It's going to be raised and it's going to have, you know, two like like two sides where this catamaran is going to sail over top of this boat and like cut it into eight pieces. And so that can be lift, and the crane is then going to lift those eight pieces onto boats and so that hopefully it can finally get taken care of. But the other interesting thing is how they had to net the whole thing off and how basically in the midst of this, there's like 4,100 cars in there. And when it first happened, like there were crew trapped inside that they had to weld out and all these things. But everybody lived as far as I understand. Um, But it is kind of a cool thing. I mean, you know, it's sort of one of those things like the Exxon Valdez or that cruise ship that like ran into the the thing. It's like we're all human, unfortunately. It would be great if there were no human errors, but (laughs) there are and uh, this was one of them, and uh, so it it amazes me that that would be sitting there for a year, and that they should still be working on it. Um, You know, the other thing, though, was, is so we had to drive back from St. Simon's Island, and when we did, we were talking about that ship, and so it kind of got interested, and in the car, we started kind of looking up some interesting things about these cargo ships, and this was a huge cargo ship, like 4,100 cars on it. Like literally, though, it's so automated and computerized that it's run by like 26 people. So that's, that's like a city, but it just doesn't need that many people. But then we were reading further and we were reading all this stuff. And maybe one interesting thing, too, about this uh, this cargo ship stuff is is COVID has made it so that as these ships sail around the world... No countries are willing to let these people into their ports. And so you have people that have been on these cruise ships or these cargo ships, COVID hits. They're supposed to be on like some six month or three month contract. And like literally nine months later, they're stuck on the ships because no countries will let them off. And so you have these people that, and that are just stuck on these cargo ships and they're still running and they're still shipping. But normally what would happen is they would be porting and people would go home to their families and new crew would come in. But right now, the crews that are on the ships are stuck on the ships and they've been there forever and uh, they're getting paid. But I'm sure going a little bit stir crazy because of the fact that they're just sort of trapped there because every country's sort of assuming that they've been exposed everywhere and that they have covid and they don't want to let those people come in their country. And I think to myself about like, well, what if I went what if I uh, one I'm an, as a nurse one time I traveled to California for a 3 month contract and I think to myself, well, what if I went to California for a 3 month contract and they are basically, nope, sorry you, you can't leave and you're going to have to just keep working here and keep working here and keep working here. <laughs> just how crazy that would be but you feel sorry for those people's families and I guess too mentally like just being stuck on a ship like that I think that would be pretty tough but interesting stuff you know and talking there a little bit about COVID and topic number three today I did want to talk a little bit about what I'm calling currently the COVID confusion right and so I talked to you about this conversation I had with my friend, Josh West. And one of the things, of course, we talked about was COVID. And I think one of the biggest debates out there and one of the things that you're hearing is, is that COVID is so terrible because our current administration didn't manage it well or or managed it poorly or fumbled the ball. And so... One thing I want to say right off the bat is that I do feel like that our current administration did not communicate well enough. And I blame them and I blame Fauci and I blame all these people because it's almost like if Ross Perot was our president, you know, he would have come out with charts and graphs and charts and graphs. And I think we needed charts and graphs and charts and graphs. And the reason that I believe that is because there's a couple things that are true about covid and so the very beginning of covid now i live in albany georgia at one point we were number four in the world in per capita cases and it was really 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 bad here i mean and when people started coming in with covid they came in already low on oxygen and then within two days they were on the ventilator and most of them never came off the ventilator and there was a huge amount of death here and so we saw it firsthand, 100%. And so the one thing that was stupid to me right off the bat, and I guess the thing is, is you're in a place where you're not seeing what we saw here. And so, you know, maybe for, you know, firsthand knowledge is certainly beneficial, but all of the COVID deniers who just are like, oh, it's just a bad flu or it's not really bad. Let me promise you, I've worked in the medical field a long time and I've seen a bunch of flu and this wasn't the flu and this was really bad. And so you know it it was a real deal and I think the thing is is that we saw a couple of things that I think have led us to our current point and my friend Josh and uh, my friend other friend Josh's mom both posted something on Facebook today and it was kind of talking about the reason why COVID it, there's so much confusion about it is because of the fact that there's so many unknowns I mean I think that the post it didn't say exactly that, but it came down to that. And I think that's true. So I think that the thing is, is that we've been told that everything's good and everything's under control and we need to do this and we need to reopen the economy. And we've been told masks are good and then we've told master masks are bad. And the CDC has changed the guidelines like 1,500 times. And it's pretty funny because um, one place where I worked one time, like they had, you know, you always have to have in a hospital a, a policy on how to deal or prevent falls patients. You don't want patients falling. I mean, it's a big problem when patients fall and they break bones and bad things happen. And so it's just one of those things that you got to do. And so I worked somewhere one time where like literally in 12 months, they changed the fall policy like four times. And so You're like, and at the end of them changing the policy four times, like there were all these, people were doing all these different things and there was no consistency. And so leadership comes in and they're like, we can't understand why there's no consistency. And I'm like, because you changed the policy four times in the last year, right? I mean, you can't have that much change in a big organization and communicate the message and get it out to everybody. And so, you know, the thing is, is the message has to be coherent. But when you give messages and it's one thing this week and one thing the next week and then the next week you change it again, then you can't get some big group of people like everyone in America to really understand what's going on. It's just an impossibility. And so the way information came out, a lot of this really has been bad to me because of the fact that and, and again, I, I mean, I think to Donald Trump, you know, one thing you certainly understand about him is that he's a poor communicator and that he 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 often puts out like it's like the situation very clearly to the majority of people this is the important thing you should talk about and it's often that he talks about something completely opposite and also something that's probably the worst and so that's not untrue at all whatsoever but i think that the that we should have been saying things along the I think we should have given the American people more real information, because I think the real information has sort of been obscured here. And so I think that real information about what we knew and what we didn't know about COVID, like I personally haven't seen some press conference where it basically was like, okay, here's what we know about this virus and here's what we don't. Because if you talk about that, the things that we don't know about the virus are that we don't. We know it could spread asymptomatically, but we don't necessarily know for how long. You know, first it was 14 days. Recently, the CDC guidelines changed where maybe it sounds like they're talking maybe 10 days. Um, but we we don't know about herd immunity. So we know if you get it, that you're probably going to create some antibodies, but we don't understand about the durability of these antibodies. Like, does that mean you get lifelong immunity? Which... I've seen reports that suggest that people have gotten this twice, but I don't see anything that's given that actual proof. But that would suggest you don't get lifelong immunity, right? And so it would be nice if we had what's called herd immunity, meaning if a bunch of people get it and they get antibodies and they can't get it again, then eventually it dies out. We got no proof that that's true. Like we're going supposedly for herd immunity, but guess what? We don't know if the antibodies are helpful and that they last a long time and that they mean you can't get it again and um so you know unfortunately and the other thing is about masks do masks help do masks not help and I think it's pretty clear that maybe like and people don't even understand like what wearing a mask does because if I wear a mask it doesn't protect me it protects you and the reason is is because this spreads by droplets and so if I have a mask on and I cough or I sneeze and the mask catches the droplets and they don't get in the air then maybe you don't get it and I've seen some things that say the masks certainly aren't 100% effective but maybe and maybe it's as low as 40%. However, if you could prevent 40% transmission by everyone wearing a mask, then that's probably beneficial. Um but I think that you're seeing that that kids might get this, but not necessarily get really sick. And college-age kids might get it. And even kids might not be spreading it well to adults. And that people in their 20s and 30s, if they get it, that they're extraordinarily rare that they might die. But that people who are 80 or people that have a bunch of health conditions or are morbidly obese or people who have immunosuppressive conditions that those people might be a much higher risk, and right? So my question is, is, like, why didn't we come out and we have graphs and charts and say, this group of people is at risk and this is that, and what we need to do is we need this, you know, the younger people should be going to school and going to work, but we need to keep them away from grandma, and we need to do things to protect the at-risk groups and these kind of things. Doesn't mean the death rate would have been zero, you know, but at the same time, when you talk about the alternative, because the alternative is, is, well, let's just all, you know, Isolate and wear masks and not be near each other forever, we'll just all sit in our homes and we'll kill the economy and no one has and we have forty percent unemployment and this kind of thing. You know, I think that you have very reasonable to believe that that and you know people under forty could be doing maybe wearing a mask and social distancing and going to work, and that college kids would be doing their thing, and that we need to protect the vulnerable groups. Because the death rates, you know, have just changed. And so the other thing I just wanted to comment on really quickly is being in a place that's kind of an epicenter. We actually got down to a point where we were at about 20 cases. And then we did have a spike that we're seeing spikes all over the nation. And we're hearing that spikes are so terrible because, oh my God, you know, we're being irresponsible and we're reopening too soon and we should be shutting everything down. But, you know, the thing is, is the presentations of the virus at least specifically where I live, have changed quite a bit. I talked to you about how everyone was coming in and they're on oxygen and then they're on the ventilator and then they're dying. Well, now people are coming in. So number one about the cases that we're seeing, the spike is that it's a lot of younger people because younger people weren't getting this thing before. And so they're getting it and maybe they're a little sick and most of them are asymptomatic. Uh, You know, so that's not a big deal. And then even the adults that I see now some of the kids I see may have given it to their adults so maybe I see some of the adults and the adults though are presenting different they're not needing a bunch of oxygen now they feel worse and they actually it's funny because the people before were much sicker and their lives were in danger but they didn't necessarily look super sick other than not being able to breathe you know, now people, you're seeing them and they look like trash. They look like they got the flu and they're achy and they have fevers and they don't want to eat, but they don't need that high levels of oxygen. And I see people like that and I say, well, sorry you feel bad and I don't want you to be sick, but I'm not worried you're going to die. And so I think what we're seeing is is that even if the cases are spiking, it's happening a lot of younger people who aren't really getting sick. And even the people that are getting sick, they're just not getting sick the same way. And the deaths are much lower. And I just got to be honest with you, like, you know i mean i don't think that if the virus has changed and if the death rates get so much lower and if when you get it it's going to make you sick for a couple of days and then you're just going to get better and the majority of people that get it especially younger people aren't going to have any symptoms at all then why would we still be arguing about closing down the entire country and so I think that information to be given to the general public. I think that everyone should understand the things I just said. Everyone should understand who's at risk and who isn't, and that the and and so the American people sort of understand that when we reopen things, this is a way to reopen it that's not necessarily going to raise the death rate, and but we protect these people to not raise the death rate, and that people kind of understand that the the presentation of the virus has shifted. These are the things we're not hearing. I mean, we're either hearing that it's not as bad as you think and we should reopen everything. And then on the other side, we're hearing, oh, well, you're being irresponsible and we should just keep the country shut down. And neither one of those are right. Neither one are responsible. And neither one accurately really reflects, I think, what's really going on with the virus. And so I think that, uh, unfortunately, it's another area. You know, if you want to, I think two things there's this question out there about if someone else was in power could they have done things different I guess we're around what 170,000 dead in the country and I'll say you know we had outbreaks like this in the past this isn't the first novel coronavirus we've had 1918 a couple in 1950 that killed a million or two million people and so we slowed down the virus but I think the 100 percent thing you could say is there's if you have a novel virus so we have no protection no immunity no vaccines and it comes in to a country like ours where the other thing is is China communist country they can just bring in the military and close things down can't close things down the us people won't even people are rioting about wearing a mask <laughs> like how are we going to shut down the cities we can't do that can't shut down stuff in america this is a free place right um and you know this fire is going to come in here and it's going to kill some people i mean that's just 100 percent we aren't worse off than other countries i hear right now it's like we're the worst country in the world no we're not i mean there's other countries there's no country in the world that has a better handle on this than we do there's countries that got hit harder and countries that didn't and but look at italy italy shut down their entire country And they still had a whole bunch of deaths. I mean, I think the thing is, is that to believe that any group, any person, any healthcare professional, anything at all whatsoever could take something like this and stop 170,000 people from dying in a country of 360 million people. And the other key is, is that this virus spread asymptomatically. When I was talking to my friend Josh the other day, like there's no possible way to stop a virus. If you have people walking around who have no symptoms and have no idea that they have it, for up to 14 days, they can be spreading it to other people. And then someone says, well, if we'd implemented widespread testing sooner. Well, okay. I mean, sure. But again, you're going from we have no ability to test this virus. And all of a sudden, we're supposed to test 360 million people. And then the other thing is, is if I'm negative now. Well, you better test me next week, right? Because next week, maybe I'm not negative And you better test me the week after that. And the question is, is, you know, how in the world were we supposed to, as a nation, all of a sudden ramp it up where we can test every single American every three days? Because that's what it would have taken... To be able to not have this virus spread to anybody, right? And so I guess the real question is, is could anyone have done better? I don't know. I think the messages could have been better. And I think that people could be a lot calmer, right? I think if better messages were sent out and there was a better message of calm, that that probably could have been very helpful uh but as far as could someone else have been in control and all the deaths could have stopped i don't think so especially at the level of the presidency and the reason i say that is is because the president has limited power to affect stuff like this The president can't constitutionally put a national mask mandate in place, right? This is state stuff, and some states did, and some states didn't. And if you have a Republican in power, you're going to have Democratic states who say that, that this president's bad and not going to, we're not going to do it. And if you have a Democrat in power, it's going to kind of be the opposite. But you're not going to have everyone who agrees on all this stuff. It's it's just not going to happen in a country like ours. But I think the thing is, is that you see China shut down Wuhan and. Italy shut down their entire nation, and you had all of these things, and even in our country. So, you have like a place like California. California has been extremely strict, arrest, you know, wanting to arrest people for being on the beach and not wearing their mask and doing all these things. I mean, it's a country that, I'm sorry, a state that even today is, is having like these phased reopenings and these kind of things as compared to a state where I live that's like Georgia that was just like, okay, let's open everything. Okay, so California and Georgia have both had spikes. California had it by continuing to force lockdowns and Georgia had it by not. And again, it comes back to the fact that the virus is different. It's like when people get the virus now, it's a different thing than when they got it before. Before, it was like a bunch of people were going to die. Now, not that many people are going to die. Now, some people are going to die. Yeah, sorry. I mean, it, I don't want to be unsympathetic, but you have to kind of decide about the fact that regardless of what you do, we're seeing some people are going to die. And, you know, you want to see the worst two states in the in the nation are New Jersey and New York. And, and the way to measure that is by deaths per million. And their deaths per million or something in the 36,000 range. In other states like Florida and Arizona and some of these other states that you hear are supposedly so bad at this, they have like 1,400 per million. And so, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And unfortunately, it's on both sides. And so I wish that we could get good information from everyone, true information, and I wish that we could get you know I think it's okay, like the reason why someone like Dr. fauci and the c d c is doing what they're doing and they're waff it seems like they're waffling one week they're like, "Do a mask next week, don't do a mask." Well, it's just because of the unknowns of the virus, and to think that you could have a different person in the Oval Office and all those unknowns would suddenly be clear, it's just false, I mean it's just not true, right. I mean, there's unknowns and they remain unknowns. And so it would be much better if they would just come out and say, hey, look, we're doing the best we can. And this week, based off the information, we know this is what we want to do. And then the next week you say, well, we really believe this, but now we have this evidence that's kind of showing us that maybe we should go this direction. And so I think we could have more positive messages and hopeful messages. And I also think we could have more factual and honest messages from both sides, And I think the American people would be in a better place. And I think the virus would be a lot different. But if you want to take something from all of this, just take the fact that the virus is different and that the death rates are down. And I think that that's a really good thing. Um, So I'm really running over today. So this isn't going to be, I guess, 5 and 40. I'm already at 46 minutes, so I'm running my mouth. But hey. I'm glad you're hanging with me. So we have two topics left. The next topic that I want to talk about is one that's a little less heavy. I guess so far I've been talking about heavy topics. I'm sorry about that. But uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Nintendo Switch. So yes, I'm a little bit of a gaming nerd. I kind of go in and out in my life. When I was younger, I played a lot of games. Um, The two kinds of games that I've always liked the most were role-playing games, uh, RPGs. I think my favorite game of all time is probably Final Fantasy VII. I played that so much <laughs> that that I shouldn't even tell you about it. Like, maybe I'd be, like, a, I don't know, an MIT professor now if I hadn't wasted that time, right? But uh, the other kind of game that I like, too, tend to be, like, like uh, world-building games. And so what I mean is, like, there's games... Like, there's one called Civilization, where you're kind of starting from scratch and you have to build a civilization. There's Sim City where you're building a city. I played games where you had to build train lines. I mean, I've always liked games where you kind of started out from scratch and you had to build something. And so, during COVID, you know, because made in China and the supply chains or whatever, the Nintendo Switch came out right before COVID hit. And then they all dried up, and it's been impossible to find. And anyone who can find one is probably selling it on eBay. Usually costs $300. You go on eBay, they're 5 $550. So anyone who finds one's trying to resell it. Well, so I was wandering around Target, and there's this case, and there it was. One Nintendo Switch. Now, I need a video game system like I need a hole in my head, right? But... I was like, all right, well, it was my birthday, and I was like, there's one, <laughs> and uh, so I was like, and and this guy that works there comes up, and he's like, I see you looking at that. I'm like, yeah, I'm looking at it. He said, look, if you want it, you better get it. He said, we're not going to get another one for like four months. He said, so this is your chance, and he said, someone else is going to come up in the next 10 minutes and buy that thing. I'm like, all right, I'll buy it. I bought it, so I bought it. So then I'd make the decision, because I'm not really below, like, buying something and reselling it, right? If I could make some money. But I was like, nah, it's my birthday, whatever, so I'm gonna get it. So, I got it. I got a Nintendo Switch. So me and, like, what? 80 million, like, 10-year-olds have a Nintendo Switch. But, I gotta tell you, I'm really liking it. And I want to talk a little bit about it, just because of the fact that... So, I've come, and I I had Game Boys, you know, way back in the... Heck, I had Atari way back in the day, but you know, Game Boys, and then I had the Nintendos, and I had Playstations, and all this stuff, and the Nintendo Switch is a really, really unique uh, system, and it's really cool, so basically what the Nintendo Switch is, is it's like a little, it's basically a handheld console, it has a, a screen on it that's probably six inches by four inches, but you know, because cell phones are so good now, that basically it's like a mini tablet, and it's 1080p video, and it has the little controllers on the side. And so you can take that thing with you and it's portable. So you can take it on an airplane. If you had internet on an airplane, you can play all your games right on this little handheld thing. But the other cool thing that it does is it has a dock. So you dock that thing in this dock and you, you put that into your TV. Well, then you're playing it like a video game system on your TV. And so it works like that. Now, the amazing thing is, is I haven't played it very much like where I'm doing the portable handheld thing. But if you do, like, it's amazing how good the screen is. And, like, basically, it's just like playing it on your TV. And, like, basically, you can take your games with you everywhere you go, which is pretty amazing. Um, You know, I had a Game Boy way back in the day with this little, you know, (laughs) one-by-one-inch black-and-white screen. It certainly isn't that. But the other thing that I really think is cool and I love about it is, like, it's all gone uh, on the Internet. And so basically... You can buy video game cartridges for it if you want to and put in the video game cartridge. But every single game that you want to play is also downloadable. And so you can just go online to the Nintendo store and just download it. And so you have you can put this SD card in there and the amount of storage you have to put games on there depends on your SD card. But um, basically, you can basically have the cloud and you you know pull your games in and out as you want to play them. And so just the, like, I just remember, like, you'd have to go, and you'd have to buy these video game cartridges, and you'd have to go to the store, and you have to do all these things. And, like, basically now, you don't have to go anywhere anymore. You just go on there, and you just download what you want. Um, it's it's really, really amazing. And so, uh, because of the kind of games I like, you know, the first game I was playing was a game called uh, Star Stardew Valley. And so, basically, it was a It was like a world builder, but it was based on basically farming. You inherited a farm, and you had to build up your farm. And I liked it, and it was pretty good, and it was pretty detailed. But for some reason or another, uh, I ended up with a game called Animal Crossing. And so Animal Crossing is a game that uh, is another world builder. And so basically on Animal Crossing, what you do is you go to a deserted desert island, and you build up the deserted desert island from nothing but the weird thing or the interesting thing about animal crossing is is once you get in there and you start playing like most games only are active when you're in there but animal crossing is a game that plays in real time meaning that when you play whatever time it is where you are is the time it is in the game and so like basically like that game is rolling 24 hours a day and if you just happen to like log in and do stuff then you're doing stuff and when you're out you're out but it doesn't mean that time stops and so the reason that that's interesting is because the fact that there's like daily tasks to do and so like things will reset in 24 hours and so if you don't log in the next day then and then you hit another 24 hours it's like you have this 24 hour period of time where things were going on and you didn't get involved with them and that's exceptionally bad right because think about that from a time standpoint but it is kind of cool also and the other thing that's it's so detailed and so interesting that like depending on what time of day you get in there too like things are different like there's different things that happen in the morning and different things available to you at different times of the day things that you could only have happen or be available to you at nighttime. and it's just very very detailed and unfortunately I've been spending too much time on it and the first week I did spend a bunch of time on it and now I found that I'm spending less time on it of course and I do have to work and I have a real life and I have a house to take care of and all these kind of things I can't play like I used to play back in the Final Fantasy 7 days of course but it's really really a cool game and it's really really a cool system like that system is just really amazing and I just can't imagine that anyone wouldn't like it and and because of the The other interesting thing about the Nintendo Switch is because it's all digital now, you have, like it used to be like you'd have a video game system and they'd have these cartridges and the video game system would sign deals with these different game developers and those game developers would sell the cartridges and that was all the games that was available. But because all of this is online now, you have all of these companies that have developed all of these computer games over time that basically are taking old computer games and formatting them for the switch and then selling them on this this website and so like basically it's like the amount of available content is ridiculous like there's no possible way that really anybody couldn't find something that they were interested in because it's not limited to just these few developers that develop these only new games for the system it's like you got people all over the place that are developing all of this stuff all the time and new content is popping up and uh it's just really 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 interesting and so it's funny at this age now maybe even more than I'm enjoying any of the games that I may be playing I'm just enjoying the the technology of it because it's you know last system that I had might have been a PlayStation 2 or something and when you look at the development from that to now it's just really 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 amazing and, you know, you think about it, I look at it, and I look at my iPhone, and I and I understand that my iPhone led to the development of something like this, and the technology part of it is just really cool. And so uh, I guess I could stop now, but we still have one more topic, so we're just going to keep rolling through. I'm just being chatty today, right? So the last topic that I wanted to talk about was... Um, I do this podcast, but at work, I listen to podcasts while I'm working on the computer. And one of the ones I've been listening to is that NPR has a money podcast. And so it's been around for a really long time. But I just, I found it not too long ago. And I kind of scroll through the episodes and I don't listen to every episode. Some things don't interest me. But it's basically about economics. And the guys that do it and the ladies that do it, they do a really good job of taking economic cons- uh Sorry, economic, uh, just trying to take economics and make it understandable, you know, concepts that are kind of very difficult and they kind of bring them and they speak to you about them in language that you can understand. But the episodes are so varied and they talk about so many different things and when they talk about the things they talk about... How does this kind of apply to economics, right? So I've been learning a whole bunch about a whole bunch of different things. Um, it's not boring, right? You'd sit there and think, oh my gosh, they're just going to sit there and teach you economic terms and whatever. But they really go out and they kind of find stories. So they have this economic concept that they want to talk about. And then they really go find a story that sort of kind of examines a real life example of how that concept is important. So you A, understand it, but B, it can be pretty understood entertaining sometimes. And so I was just going to talk about a couple of episodes I listened to and I do want to encourage people that if you have any interest at all in economics or any and really even you don't even have to like economics cuz I think the the stories are so entertaining that anyone could listen to it. But if you do have any interest in money or economics, you'd enjoy it a lot more. But I was going to talk about a few of the episodes. So one of the episodes that they talked about was that, um, you know, back in the 80s, there was a huge problem with banks and money laundering with the drug dealers. And they talked about El Chapo. They're talking about that he was making so much money, like he's making like $14 billion a year, all in small bills. And so he had to do something with it. And so and another thing that I thought about this episode was that there have been some banks like like big banks that are a lot, you know, around the world who have basically been accused of basically just laundering drug money. Um, There was one specific bank and I'm not going to name it, but because I'm sure some people use it. Because it's an international bank, but they basically like set up this branch in this podunk little Mexican town that there was no reason to have a branch there, and it just sort of turned out they set the branch there so that they could launder all this drug cash, right? Because banks, you know, say, "Hey, we'll launder your cash for you if you give us eight percent," right? And so it's good profit maker. Um, so anyway, in the case of this episode, what the government decided they were going to do is that they were going to open their own bank and they did. And then they courted all the drug dealers and the drug dealers started laundering their money through this government's bank. And then it became international. And then all these countries arrested a bunch of drug dealers. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, another episode I thought was pretty interesting was an episode where they were talking about light bulbs. You know, like, good Lord, what's this about light bulbs? And they were talking about something called the Phoebus cartel. And that was when light bulbs first came out. So the interesting thing is, is that there's a fire station in the United States that has a light bulb where the inside is like this really hard carbon filament that's been burning continuously for 118 years. And so I was like, okay, so if they can make a light bulb that, that, uh, can burn for 118 years how come i have to replace my three-way light bulb it seems like every four days right like it's so stupid well it turns out that they made light bulbs too good and that there was this cartel that got together uh, all the people in the world that made light bulbs and they said all right we need to dumbed down light bulbs we want them to last a thousand hours because they were like if we make light bulbs so good we're never going to make any money like if you had a light bulb in your house and all of them would last 118 years you'd buy them once and you'd never buy light bulbs again i'm like well that's not going to work so basically they they de-engineered and they continued and and it said they really had to work hard to make light bulbs worse (laughs) in order to make them do that And so uh, anyway, it was not that this cartel is around anymore. However, obviously, you see that these companies are still operating this way since light bulbs don't last forever. But it's funny to know that they could last forever, right? Um, So I think that's pretty funny. Uh, I might be running out of time. Ah, so... Maybe one of the reasons I figured out I was doing a 5 and 40 podcast is because I use the Anchor app, and I like Anchor, and it does a lot of nice things, but obviously it limits episodes to 60 minutes. So we'll call this episode 12, part 2, because I'm not done yapping yet. Uh, so the third thing I wanted to talk about with the NPR uh, podcast was they had an episode that was about paychecks and access to money. And so basically, historically, you work a day, and then you'd get paid for that day of work. And so it turns out that uh, during World War One, that there was a big concern about inflation and a big concern about all this cash that was floating around. And so the government wanted a way to kind of limit that cash. And so what they did was they came up with uh, the two-week pay period And so instead of getting paid every day that you worked anymore, then you got paid. Well, then the government had to come up with a way to tax it, and they had to come up with a way to get a pay stub, and they had to come up with all of these things, all the things that we know about today. You know, but the interesting thing is, is that when you did that, I mean, basically you're giving your employer... A interest free loan, right? I mean, one of the things that I don't like about getting money back at the end of the year on my taxes is, is that yes, it's like nice to get this chunk of money, but at the same time, you have to think about that that was your money. It wasn't money you owed in taxes, and basically, you gave the federal government an interest free loan of that money for the whole year, and then they gave it back to you. But they made a lot of interest on that money that you could have been making interest on that money if it had been in your hands earlier, right? And so. Um, pretty interesting to learn about that but then the other thing was is they were talking about uh, employers and how employer. well well uh, let me change that so they were talking about bank fees and so like basically they were talking about overdraft fees are so profitable for banks that like there was a ceo of a bank that bought a big yacht and he named it like overdraft fees because it made him so rich And there's this just ridiculously huge segment of the population who I guess can't manage money very well or just don't have enough, I don't know, but that regularly are overdrafting. And so basically every time they overdraft, they're getting hit with $30 charges from the bank. And so they were talking about some new apps that are out now. And so um, an employer. So they had a guy. He owned like 500 Burger Kings or something. And they were talking to him. And he was having trouble like retaining employees. And he was thinking, well, how can I retain employees? And so one of the things that he did was he partnered with this app and so basically what happens is is that when he his employees are now able to work and the day that they work then the money is available to them on this app if they want to now they still can get paid weekly or every other week like they were supposed to if they want to but if they want access to their money sooner they can get access through this app now they said that if you wanted to access it i think there was some kind of fee of three dollars which I wouldn't want to pay $3, but they were saying, but $3 is a lot better than a $30 overdraft fee. And this guy was basically saying that because he was offering that to his employees, that he was having employees that were staying with him or getting hired on with him because they wanted this availability. So I do think it's a lot better to pay $3 than $27. Um, But that was fairly interesting. Uh, The next episode was about vodka and so you know one of the things that you hear about vodka is is that vodka all tastes the same and it's made the same and so like trying to say that there's some such a thing as a premium vodka versus a bottom shelf vodka is supposed to be kind of a fiction so they talked about this guy and this guy was kind of some guy that was kind of a swindler who was looking at other alcohols and looking at premium brands and he decided he wanted to do that for vodka And like he decided he wanted to do that for vodka before he even came up with the vodka, right? It's not like he made a product and it was a superior product and then he marketed it as a premium vodka. He just was like, I'd like to have a premium vodka because I want to make some money. And and the actual product itself was secondary, but this is the guy that came up with Grey Goose, which is sort of like the premium vodka today, Right. And so they talked about him and they talked about how he marketed it and how he sold it. And he basically created this premium vodka market He made a bunch of money. I think he sold it to Seagram's for $2 billion or something like later in his life. Um, but the interesting thing is, is that so these guys um, were talking about the fact. So one of the things that's interesting about liquors are, is that you distill liquor, right? And then if, you, if it's a liquor that has to be aged in any way, it's like, let's say bourbon, for instance. I know a lot about bourbon. So let's say I want to start a bourbon company, all right? And so I know that if I make liquor, this clear liquor, and I put it in a barrel, it has to age in that barrel for some period of time, probably the least is maybe four years. So if I want to start my company, I can't not have any bourbon for four years, right? But it's going to be four years till I get my own. And so what they do is they have these companies who make this alcohol and you can buy it and you can put it in your own bottle and you can sell it and there's some pretty popular bourbon brands that have done that where basically they started and they made their own product but they sold this other company's product until their own product was ready and so same thing for vodka vodka has this these distillers that make the vodka and then I could just buy it from them and I can put it in my own bottle and I can sell it and so the people that run this podcast what they did is that they went and they did three things they bought a very bottom shelf vodka they bought some gray goose which was supposed to be the best vodka and then they got some vodka from this company that was distilling vodka and they sent it off for analysis And the interesting thing about vodka is it's all, if there is one thing about vodka that might be true, it's that you can distill it a number of times. And so basically, like, if I distill a product once, there's a lot of impurities. So I distill it a second time, and I take out more of the impurities, and then a third time, and more of the impurities. And so basically what happens is, is each time I distill it and I take out more impurities, there's less product, right? So... Tito's vodka distills six times, and there are some vodkas that distill ten times. And so if you want to argue that one vodka might be better than another, the really the only way to argue about it is to say that it's distilled more because it's supposed to be a pure product. And so then the other argument you can make is that that should cost more because it, the more they distill it, the less of the end product there is. Um, and the more work it is, Right. And so, but anyway, they took these three vodkas, they sent them off for analysis, and they said, okay, which one of these would you think is the best, and which is the, and it was based on impurities that were in vodka, and it turned out that the Grey Goose was the most impure of the batch. So it sort of supported the idea that, you know, (laughs) that there's no reason to pay a lot of money for supposedly premium vodka. So I thought that was interesting. And then the last one was about french fries, and, uh, So it was just basically saying that one of the biggest problems in fast food was the fact that you make french fries and that if you, after about 15 minutes they get soggy and bad and they're not crispy and they're not good anymore. And so this was becoming a bigger and bigger problem because of the fact that now with these food delivery companies that it wasn't reasonable that you'd go online and you'd order your french fries from McDonald's and that this person would go and pick it up and then they'd bring it to your house and by the time you got to your house your fries weren't any good anymore. And so they were talking about this company and this company's basically had this lady who was in R&D and she made it her mission that she was going to make a french fry. That uh, would stay crispier and hot and delicious longer, and they did this specifically because they didn't want they they understood that the market was going more towards this food delivery, and so uh, basically they talked about this process and how many times it took and years and the person who was on the podcast went to this company, and at the time the podcast was put out, this hadn't actually been put into use yet. But basically, they made some kind of coating that they put on the potatoes and the fries were made. It lasted. And so this person went to the place and they made the fries. So they made fries without the coating and then with the coating and they tasted them both at the beginning and they said they tasted the same. But then 30 minutes or 40 minutes later, the ones with the coating on them were still good and the other ones were soggy and bad and whatever. And so I thought that was kind of interesting. Although that does always make me think about like what kind of preservatives and what kind of even worse stuff not like fries were the healthiest food ever anyway right but what worse stuff were they adding and uh, not to do with that podcast at all but you know one thing that's really interesting if you ever want to just look up something one day i saw this on tv one day and it sort of blew me away about the fact that they basically have a a company that has a food flavor lab and basically this company all they've done is that they've developed a bunch of chemicals and all the chemicals are is different flavors and basically they flavor everything and so if you have like fast food restaurants and they have ground beef and they're not necessarily using the highest quality ground beef and it's frozen and it's getting shipped to the store and then it's getting not necessarily cooked in the best way it's like well guess what that doesn't necessarily taste very good so they buy this flavoring from the company and they put it in the hamburgers and it tastes like a hamburger is supposed to taste and uh, just when you look at this company and you look at every single product and everything every single thing that we eat has flavors from this company in it and so it's like we begin to learn that that's what something's supposed to taste like have you ever had something before and you are about to bite into it and you're anticipating that it's going to taste like this food and it doesn't and how disappointed that you are well it's because basically that the reason we understand that this is supposed to taste this way is because all of the different companies that produce this certain food item are probably buying the flavoring from this company and it should all kind of taste the same that's pretty interesting and it's something that is interesting looking sometimes if you if you got a minute and you just want something cool to look at and again i think too just about how potentially bad maybe that is they talked about this uh impossible whopper that came out which was supposed to be like a vegetarian whopper no beef in it or whatever and it was supposed to taste exactly like a whopper and they're already coming out and saying how bad that is for you they're already saying like supposedly because it doesn't have beef in it and it's vegetable-based. It's supposed to be healthier. But with all the chemicals and the crap that they have in it, that it's actually way more unhealthy than if you just ate the Whopper itself. And I kind of suspect that there's quite a bit of that. Uh, you know, but it's still kind of an interesting thing to think about. And so, you know, part two here. So it means I've won, run way over. So if you listen to the whole episode, both parts, I really appreciate you sticking with me. Um, I appreciate everybody's support. You know, I was questioning whether I was going to keep doing the podcast and I'm doing it only because I had a number of people come up to me and just basically say, hey, we're really enjoying it. We want to listen to more episodes. And so I'm going to keep working on it because I appreciate your support. I'd love your feedback. If you see me, tell me, you know, I have a Facebook page, send me a message, Uh, send me topics that you might be interested in. I'd like to talk about things that you're interested in, um... And people have given me good feedback. And some of the topics I've talked about have been good recommendations from folks. And so uh, anyway, I appreciate everybody. You guys take care.